Welcome to Brook USA on the Road. Our mission at Brook USA is to significantly improve the welfare of working horses, donkeys, and mules, and the people they serve throughout Asia, Africa, the Middle East, the Americas, and the Caribbean by raising funds and responsibly directing them to the areas of greatest need. Brook USA connects private philanthropists with their passion for helping relieve the suffering of working equines and their owners. In each podcast episode, you'll hear a report from one of our board members on the current initiatives for our organization. You'll also enjoy updates from our Brook USA ambassadors, who range from top-level international writers to best-selling authors. I'm your host, Julianne Neal. In this episode, you'll have the opportunity to learn more about Brook USA, a nonprofit, board led organization dedicated to alleviating the suffering of working equines and the people they serve in the developing world. In this episode of the podcast, we'll be speaking with Grant Hader Menzies, who authored the book, The Lost War Horses of Cairo The Passion of Dorothy Brooke the tragic, inspiring, true story of an English woman's lifelong effort to save British war horses abandoned in Egypt after 1918. Later in the podcast, we'll hear from Melissa Clarner and Sally Frick, who head up the community advisory councils in California and the Carolinas. Grant, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for spending time speaking with us today. I'm excited, really excited to have you. Um, And so I'm going to start off with a question about that. I didn't realize that there were two versions, two editions of the book. Um, I did see an alternate cover when I looked things up on Amazon, but I do have the the U.S. version here and was um, really, really interested to read the the things with Temple's endorsement and also with Monty Roberts in, in the forward. So how did those endorsements and how did that forward come about? I've, I've always had the uh, uh, opinion or uh, credo that if you don't ask, you don't get. And so, and there's, there's no, no, no reason not to ask all you can, all they can say is no. Uh, Hopefully they'll say yes. And so, um, when I, whenever I, I begin a book, it's because I'm intensely interested in the topic. I may not know everything about it, probably, and really feel like I don't know everything about it till the very end, till it's out and published, and then I feel like I know what I what I was writing about. But I'm so interest, I was so interested in Mrs. Brooke, um, and her work, and the fact that it it has um, uh, it's had uh, um, an influence on how the charity uh, does its work today, many years after her death um, in 1955. And so I, I automatically uh, began thinking, well, who, who would be best to uh, approach about uh, endorsements and, and um, uh, prefaces and, and forwards and that kind of thing. And it's always with an eye to um, further enlightening the reader uh, about the topic. So Monty Roberts with his, um, his uh, uh, work with horses and with his, his work with Brooke, he's a, a global ambassador. Um, all of that um, really uh, was like, well, he's the one I have to, I have to approach. 
Um, and uh, um, the same for the, the, uh, the UK edition. Major General Sir Evelyn Webb Carter gave me some an endorsement for the uh, the UK edition. So it's it's always with a view to uh, bringing in people who understand what I've written about, but also um, who can um, uh, add something to the conversation. Um, and uh, that's why I approached Dr. Grandin. Um, uh, Susanna Forrest, a writer on horses, a fabulous writer on horses. And luckily they said yes. So. <laughs> well, I love that thought of the different perspectives because, I mean, obviously this this podcast is Brook USA on the road. And although we're not really and truly on the road right now, we're, we're Zoom calling everybody and, and able to speak that way. But I guess to me, that's the beauty of it that you know, you're in, in Canada, I'm in the southeastern part of the United States, and we can still um, chat about Dorothy Brooke and her amazing work. But as as Brooke USA being a completely separate organization with the same values and, and supporting the work of, of someone like Dorothy Brooke, I think um, this organization certainly prides itself on that heritage derived from her extraordinary work. So it's it's an amazing opportunity to, to get to see both. I didn't realize there were two versions. So to get to see both of those, I think it was great. So what I would like to start out with are the horses, that general topic of the book and the whole reason behind the work in and of itself, the horses and their history from being brought into the Middle East during World War One. Um, that, that part of the introductory section of the book was just an amazing tale. I was really moved about reading about two of the horses ridden by Jeffrey Brooke, um, her husband. At, at, you mentioned Alice, who I guess was injured and sent home, but then command training, who although was injured, stayed behind and recovered enough to be in a show jumping competition like a week later or whatever. And that just reminds me of what a different era that would have been. Um, to be at battle and an injured, and then you're at a show the next week. So can you speak a little bit about the horses and and that whole way of life? Well, one thing I'd like to mention first off, uh, since Brook USA is in the U.S., and the U.S. entered World War I a few years after it began, is that horses were actually sent over, you might say equine soldiers were sent over from the U.S., to fight in a battle in battles they did not cause um, long before human soldiers were sent over. American horses were sold uh, and sent shipped off from Newport News um, in 1914, right off the get-go. And uh, many of the horses that uh, you know ended up um, in the uh, in the Middle East uh, in and in Egypt. And around the eastern Mediterranean area um, after the war were uh, from England and from uh, uh, from Australia and New Zealand and so forth. But many of them also would have come from the U.S. When you think that these animals had actually been um, enduring that um, chaos uh, of war uh, several years longer than American uh, human soldiers would be enduring it. It really puts things in perspective um, as to um, uh, the the essential injustice of expecting an animal to fight a human in a human caused 
situation. It's it's just it's a part of our exploitation of them that that has never sat well with me, mm. and I know it bothered Mrs. Brooke, although. Um, she knew she understood us as a superb horsewoman and married to a, a super, superb horse uh, um, horse expert, Dr. Uh, sorry, um, uh, Major General Brooke. Mm-hmm. She uh, she knew that their horses do do desire to serve. They desire to they, they want to be given something to do, want to be given a job. But that's not the job I'd give any horse. Um, I tell the story in the book of Cupid, the the mare, who quite extraordinarily uh, remained with her original owner all the way through the war. Um, she, uh, from the very beginning, she she started in France and then ended up in the Mediterranean area. Um, ended up being brought back to Egypt after the war, where many of the uh, uh, soldiers were uh, demobilized, and um, there was no plan in place. Uh, something that that horrified um, uh, Churchill uh, when he found out to bring the horses back, to bring any of these equines back. There were there were horses, mules, donkeys, and Cupid um, died in a freak accident um, before she could be. Uh, sold off or, or, um, or um, euthanized. Um, there's a myth uh, that's a pleasant, I guess it's a pleasant bittersweet myth that horses were taken out into the desert and shot rather than that they should fall into the hands of the Egyptians or the other, other peoples. Unfortunately, there are very few accounts that can be verified. And what we know from the fact that Mrs. Brooke found uh, so many, several thousands of them, um, uh, rescued uh, at, by the time her her charity was founded in ni- 1934 in Cairo, she had rescued some five six thousand of them, um, identified by the brand on on their rear flank, and so they were considered surplus. Um, there were all kinds of other issues too, quarantine issues, all kinds of issues. The, the sad thing about Cupid that got to me and I had to tell her story in the book was that she had been a, a, a pet. She'd been a, she, she was so um, close to her people all the way to the end. And then this, this freak accident and it was a, um, a member of the Laurie family who was with her at the end and had to deliver the final euthanization. And, um, is it fair? It's not fair. Um, was it wonderful for her to be with um, someone who knew her and whose voice she knew? Yes. Right. Uh, but you think of Mrs. Mrs. Brooks' accounts many times. She wrote, um, "I I began speaking in English to the to the an old horse, broken down, blind, old horse in Cairo, an English horse, and his ears would prick up." It chokes me up. I, I just, um, I, I, my mother loved horses. My grandmother loved horses. Um, they, they sort of uh, run through my family background. And um, uh, it's, it's a sort of thing that, it's, it's the essential unfairness of it. But, but there's right. Mrs. Brooks' um, vision for how, mm-hmm. to, how to break the circle of pain mm-hmm. by dealing with both the horses, uh, the, uh, the equines health 
uh, and care issues and the education right. of the because right. she saw so many foreigners in in Egypt who would take her their walking stick and wrap the head of a of a donkey uh, a man with a with a donkey uh, pulling a cart saying don't don't you mistreat uh, that animal in that way and then of course it makes the person feel better for the moment but the animal has to go home with that man with that person right and who is not likely to be kinder to the animal than he was in public and so she's she believed rightly the way to deal with this is to is a it's a, it's a holistic vision that really was ahead of its time Mm-hmm. Well, and I love how you deal with that in the book. I, I first of all love how you started. There were so many stories of individual horses, and the mm-hmm. fact that you started with Cupid, I thought was pretty special because it does transition the reader into that you know that idyllic setting, the beautiful horse, the family owned, and and thankfully, I, I guess for me, thankfully, she died in a different way than so many of the ones that yes. Dorothy Brooke found. And I even love the fact that that the owner t- took her hoof back and had it. I mean, that just shows how how much beloved this, this family horse was. She, and, was. she still remembered. They still talk about her. I think what's interesting too is that as you as you were telling these stories of individual horses too, you had already just mentioned about the people side of it and the way that that work is tied together. Because to me, you you have the two different sides of the people who just were not able to do any better with what they had, and this this donkey, this horse, this mule was their livelihood, and just they couldn't do better or the side of it where there was animal cruelty involved. And so it's, I, it reminds me of like the Brook USA initiatives right now with plots of land in Nicaragua, where the people are learning to use that and make a better life or the women in Kenya who were becoming empowered through their donkeys. And so those are initiatives of people who want to learn more and want to do better. But then there's also that cruelty side of it. And I have to say, going back to the individual horses, you went from Cupid, who I just loved, and then it goes straight into Old Bill, which I guess was the catalyst for Dorothy Brooke for yes. the work. So can you tell me a little bit more? I hate to ask because I almost couldn't read that chapter. Um, there were certain chapters I almost couldn't read. It makes me choke up to, to talk about him. But it's, it's um, you know what, I, I've had people say, oh, I couldn't read this. I couldn't read that. It was just too terrifying. And I said, I... I feel the same. Uh, I felt the same writing about it and reading it. But sure. just saw these things for 25 years. Yes, and she saw them every day, and she had to make decisions about who, which horse to euthanize. So I think if she could do that, yes, we can, we can read about it. Absolutely, <laughs> you're right. You're right. <laughs> I do agree. I do agree. Read about read what is our his he's written himself. Um, yeah. Old, Old Bill wasn't the first war horse she saw when M- Mrs. Brooke arrived in Cairo in October 1930. Mm-hmm. She stepped on the train. And her, uh, her car was waiting there for her and for um, Jeff, uh, her husband. The first thing she saw was these uh, um, horses that looked like they shouldn't even, well, in England, they would have been, they would have been euthanized. Um, they were skinny, their legs were shaking, they were bigger than Egyptian horses. She could see that immediately. 
And then her eye fell on the brand, which you could still see on the, the rear flank. And she thought, oh my God, it's true. We did leave them here. They were, the horses were lined up with, um, they were pulling garries or cabs and the, uh, the cabmen were, you know, shouting and yelling and, uh, for customers. And there were the horses just standing there in the, in the heat and, um, obviously neglected. Um, and that was her first glimpse. So she, that's what sent her in search of the Cairo SPCA, which her, uh, foreign friends in the city discouraged her from going to see. Don't mix with the locals, my dear. Mrs. Brooke did what she felt was the right thing, regardless of what anybody had to say, including um, the very you know, top brass in either the Egyptian or the UK governments. And so as, as, it would, as things would unfold, but at this point, she went looking and looking and finally she found the Cairo SPCA on her own. Um, and first, the first horse she met there was old Bill, as she called him. Um, he was, uh, there are pictures of him. Uh, a picture was sent uh, with her original appeal for funds for her hospital, um, for, the, uh, for the rescue of these horses. Um, she saw he had the brand of, of the, the um, British Army and he was large horse. He'd been underfed for years. He had um, problems in all four legs. He'd been brought in uh, as part of a cruelty seizure. Um, but they, the vet told her, we can't keep him because we, we didn't see him being abused. She said, well, he needs to be, um, he needs to be euthanized. And uh, the vet told her, as I mentioned, um, well, we can't do that. He belongs to this man. I'll, Dorothy said, how much? I'll buy him. How much? Well, unfortunately, the amount um, uh, was quite a bit. It would, it would be several hundred dollars um, because they had to uh, also uh, subsidize uh, purchase of another horse for the, the owner. So, uh, but until the man showed up to, uh, to take the money, Mrs. Brooke um, basically had to wait. So she, for two days, she came back to visit Old Bill, who she called him Old Bill, a practice she was to follow in later years with her her um, charity. She named the horses. She they weren't its. They weren't things. They were beings, and they should have names. She ends up uh, finally handing the money over to the man, and then uh, she goes to see Bill now. She had offered this horse um, all kinds of things. Uh, she comforted him, spoken to him, spent hours with him every day, and nothing, nothing moved him. He was completely like, just dead inside. Okay. And when she, um, but when she came to him for the final meeting, he brightened up. It was as if he knew that his suffering would soon be over. Right. So, right. She, that's when she realized, well, I have to do this. Um, I, this is what I have to do for them. I'll find all of the ones I can. And that started, that started her, her um, quest. Mm-hmm. Right. She just decided I'm diving in. There's no other way to, to do this, but to, for me to do it myself. And um, so that's how she spent the, 
remaining quarter of her life uh, in service to uh, uh, help these animals uh, first collecting, finding, and, and mostly euthanizing as many of the elderly war equines that she could find, um, horses, donkeys, and mules. Uh, from that came her hospital founded in 1934, and from that came uh, Brooke. That, that vision of not blaming the man, but blaming the poverty. Right. Well, that's much. such a powerful part of it. I mean, I, as I moved into the second half of the book, when you got into that a little bit more, it just reminds me that like that animal husbandry piece of it, the animal care, I'm reminded too that, you know, she had to have been quite a personality to a strong personality to be able to get into this totally different culture. And I love the stories of some of the other people that were involved with, you mentioned Dr. Branch and coming in to take over the zoo. And one thing that, that struck me with your writing was when he came in and he suspected that there were things going on, that the people were not taking care of the animals. And he threatened to put the people in the cages yes. and let them become the exhibit. And I'm like, you, you really have to have some, um, some inner strength to be able to come in into a place and establish that kind of strong will. And she had to add that. Yeah, remember she was a society lady and um, she hadn't really, been around this kind of thing, but when she saw, as she herself said, when I saw the men jostling for position with their horses in front of our buying table, because they, they were, uh, she and her committee would would um, would uh, uh, meet with the men who had horses that were said to have been more horses, and they would be examined, and then money would be offered for them. When she saw the men jostling for position getting into fights, fights that then involved these poor, broken down, blind, uh, um, ill, many of them dying, old horses. Um, she would actually come around the, from around the table, go up and grab them in and, and tell them to stop it. Mm. And of course, she was a tall woman, taller than most of the men, and she was an English woman. And so she got the reputation, as she herself amusingly points out, of being what they called the mad sit of Byram Altunsi Street, <laughs> sit being lady. So uh -huh. she's a mad woman. And I, I heard from a vet uh, who worked for Brooke um, up till recently that uh, there, the old, old men in the street, Byram Altunsi Street, will still say, behave yourself or the English lady will come and get you. <laughs> so this left quite an impression on the people. Wow who also knew that she cared about them. She found jobs for them. She, um, she made friends among some of these men that she would never have met otherwise. Right. They would, they, the worlds would never have come together. Hmm. Um, because when it involved animals, and this, this, this of course is something, one of the reasons why I like, I, I love writing about the animal human dynamic is that animals uh, form a bridge between um, genders, between classes, between um, completely different people, races, name it. An animal can be the bridge. Um, you go walking your dog in a park uh, and you meet somebody else walking their dog. The dogs meet without any ceremony. And you, in, you usually end up chatting with somebody. It could be, you know, uh, the king of whatever. It could be a prime minister. It could be, you know, whoever. Or it could just be someone... Um, who uh, takes out the garbage and someone you would never have talked to. 
Right. And because of this, the animal, um, the animal is a bridge to make us better communicators. So, but uh, another thing I wanted to point out is that, as I'm sure you noticed in the book, there's a particularly female um, energy about this Mm -hmm. that, um, that um, I noticed, uh, I've noticed throughout uh, my writing about animals and humans. Um, um, Mrs. Brooks theory that it, that, by helping the human and the animal, you were helping in the pain, like clean this up now, no band-aids, no come back next week. Let's clean this mess up right now. It's a very, very female um, type of, of, of energy. It's like, let's mm-hmm. do, that's how my mother was. That's how my grandmother. Right. And um, note, I noted how many, women, I think I, I list them in the, in the, the notes in the book, um, who have started uh, animal welfare organizations where they, they get that same, um, that they're using that same um, uh, method of not only um, helping the animal and getting it better, but educating the people so they don't do this again to the animal. Right. Well, um, and that to me, I, I'm reminded of the the things we talked about with Kenya and and the women because they are the head of or not the head of the family, but they're the one in the family that is taking care of the donkey, and then you know the it, they're taking care of their family, and then they're at the the water trough communing with the other women in the in the community and it becomes a huge part of that family dynamic and then that becomes that way of life these horses that that dorothy uh that mrs brooke describes um that they're what she called their um the, the pride of their background these were these were horses that had been loved back home that had been cared for and they were in the hands of men who were making them pull carts full of rocks uphill and not feeding them enough in a, in a horribly hot climate. And she said their, the pride of who they were was still there. Mm-hmm. And the, the, um, uh, the, um, the personalities were still there. And it, even a horse that was, you know, um, blind and deaf and had been worked like a machine um, till it was almost dead could still uh, could still react to um, caring treatment right. uh, revert back to those um, to what it was and and not not holding those resentments and and all the things that make us human um, it's well, just so touching. That, yes, it, it touching. really is. And I've I've noticed several times you've you've started by saying Dorothy, and then you you catch yourself and say Mrs. Brooks. <laughs> yeah, I, I, the family I call her Dodo. The family yeah. call her Dodo. I've never been able to bring myself to call her that. <laughs> They've told me her her grandchildren are, are are wonderful people. I I I love them very much, and. They they've encouraged me to say just say Dodo. <laughs> I I can't. She's she's. It would be like calling my my grandmothers by their first names. It's right. They're just not uh, quite do. Can't do it. 
I, I hold them in such esteem that that I can't do that. And it would, or, and in my day, I'm 56. You didn't call your teacher by their first name. Either. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and so then I do have to ask, you know, with her establishment of the Old War Horse Memorial Hospital and everything that has followed with Brooke and Brooke USA and all of all of the efforts across, you know, the global effort. I yeah. feel like you know her pretty well. Um with with all of these initiatives, I just know the Brook USA side of it. I, I haven't heard the rest, but hearing of of the work in Guatemala and Nicaragua and Kenya, and even now we're we're branching out into the United States. And so, how do you think Dorothy Brook would feel about all of that today? Do you think do you think she'd be proud of that, or do you? How do you she feel about that? Grateful for everything you everyone is doing, all of you. Um, every the, any she was grateful to see anyone make a move to help animals in need. Um, she was a member of, of various animal welfare organizations, even when, even after she'd founded Brooke. Um, she was uh, an original, a charter member of what became World Horse Welfare. She would be very grateful. She would also say there's more work to do. She, um, basically died with her boots on. She was ill in bed in Cairo. She couldn't get out, get out of bed. She had a uh, severe emphysema. The last thing she had done was comfort uh, an elderly polo pony named she, that she called Rosie, mm-hmm. uh, who had been marched 15 miles from the outskirts of Cairo into the hospital in her condition. Mrs. Brooke met her at the gate she could barely walk but she got up from her chair met her at the gate took her herself into the um into the stables gave her water food found out that she loved sugar from her days as a as a pampered polo pony before she'd been used you know in hard labor she was still asking after rosie as she lay in bed and uh she made the vet promise not to euthanize rosie until after she had died this was something she used to tell her head vet, uh, Dr. Raghib. She would say, um, please don't don't uh, put so-and-so down until after I've left Egypt. Please don't do it until after I've left Egypt. And so this was just in keeping. Um, but she was still working on papers uh, to do with her with her charity. She was still, she, there were papers all over the bed that she was working on when she died. That's... That's the way I want to go, and I think a lot of us feel the same way. It's she devoted her whole life to that, and I think she'd be delighted to see what's going on uh, with Brook USA. And um, uh, she would say, um, uh, you know, brilliant. Keep keep but but don't ever stop working at it because and she would be very happy to see that women are being focused on um again animals as a bridge to um making things better for everybody um she's just a brilliant woman she understood all of this and this was in the 30s when she was regarded as crazy and the Egyptians regarded her as crazy. Oh, she buys horses in in order to euthanize them. What a crazy woman. I mean, she knew this. She, she said, you know, I can't help what they say. 
Right. I just, I just want them to bring their horses to me so that um, if I can fix them, we'll fix them. But if they can't be fixed, I'll give them a, a painless end. Um, and uh, um, she, like I've said, she saw and had to do things for 25 years that none of us can really fathom. Um, we can't begin to under, understand what it, what it was like to see the things that she saw. Mm-hmm. Uh, she raised a, a, a fortune during the Great Depression to start her hospital. And, and that's keep- the thing that stands out to me because I, as, I, as I asked that question, you know, wondering how she would feel now, social media is so prevalent. And, you yeah. know, with things like the BBC show and it's just right there. But as you mentioned, when it's painful for us, you know, I sat there just now crying all the way through the description. <laughs> Um, no, it, it just, it is, it's so touching, but to wonder how she would feel about it just being now it's instantaneous. It's right there in your face. And so I, that would be so for her to have done what she did back yeah. then yes. and just wonder how, how it would be now. I don't and know. She, that's, did, that's it, she did it despite a lot of pushback. She had, uh, people from her own class saying, my dear, we don't do these things. And, um, Basically, she, like I say, she just went ahead and did what she what she felt was right. And uh, right. Uh, her great partner in all this was Jeffrey Brook. He um, he was uh, a, a companion. He was uh, uh, he was a partner in every way. Um, his expertise in horses, uh, his uh, experiences uh, dealing with horses as a, a cavalry officer in the great war, um, having seen the conditions that these, these animals were thrown into, um, was invaluable to her. I don't think she could have done it on her own. Right. Uh, a great help. Uh, they were one of the great partnerships in animal welfare history. Um, well, and we're, we're, we're just lucky that that legacy does live on today through through all of these organizations and, and Brook USA. I know we we appreciate it here across the pond from where, where it all started, I guess. Yeah. And I think you're right that that history that he had with with all of the military service in the past and seeing yeah. that side of it had to have been such a support for her. Right. Um, I have to ask you a favor. Do you have the book in front of you? I do. There's the last, I was going to try to read it, but I know I can't because I can't, I just, I don't think I'll make it through it. But that last little stanza of a soldier's kiss right before your table of contents, before I even got into the book, that just struck me as such a special. Yes, it is. Um, this was actually read by uh, Mill Nicholson for, for Brooke, uh, Action for Working Horses and Donkeys. They they recorded it for uh, for uh, a release on their their uh, website. Uh, she's, she's a wonderful um, wonderful actress. Um, and so, uh, yes, um, only a dying horse. It's by Henry Chapel. Only a dying horse. He swiftly kneels, lifts the limp head, and hears the shivering sigh. Kisses his friend. While down his cheek there steals sweet pity's tear. Goodbye, old man. Goodbye. No honors wait him, medal, badge, or star. Though scarce could war a kindlier deed unfold. He bears within his breast more precious far 
beyond the gift of kings, a heart of gold. <laughs> it's heartbreaking. It is. But that's the side of it that you know is is the way that it should be if it's yes. necessary for this. Yes. We need to feel in order to do. And I think that's what Mrs. Brooke was all about. It was the... the um, the uh, outrage, the com- the uh, compassion, the heartbreak of seeing all this energized her, and she she didn't stop until her last breath. So, <laughs> and so glad <laughs> I did not have so any glad. idea I would sob throughout this interview. <laughs> but oh wow, thank you so much, Grant, oh, for for you. explaining you know, some of that backstory. And I just know that anybody who has anything at all to do with Brook USA is going to, is going to want to read your book. So I'm sure they can find it. Amazon. Tell us about your website. How could they find more about you? Well, they can look up Grant Hader Menzies on Google and that should bring up my website. Um, They can also find it on Amazon. They can order the book through their local bookstore um, uh, just, uh, uh, in the U S it's called Dorothy Brooke and the fight to save Cairo's lost war horses. And in the UK, it's called the lost war horses of Cairo, the passion of Dorothy Brooke. Um, what we're hoping is that it attracts a producer and becomes a film because, um, that would get the story out even to an even wider audience. So we'll see. I wondered about that because I could just picture, I mean, I visualize everything when I read it. And so that kept coming through my head. Some actress out there could make her career. uh, Yes. Let me tell you. Well, I don't know if you've been, have you submitted it to the Equus Film Festival yet? No, no. Well, I'm a part of that that crew, and so I can tell you I'm going to be on the phone with you <laughs> shortly to, to talk about that because you know, I know with some of our producers and directors around, you, there's I, got to be somebody yeah. who wants to take this project it's on. an amazing story, and it's, it, it, it's about a woman who empowered herself uh, to make change in the world, uh, and she's still making change in the world many, many years after her death. Um, Absolutely. And how, I mean, we all would love that, right? So. Yes, Definitely. Well, on behalf of Brook USA, I feel comfortable saying we appreciate everything that you've done to to tell her story so that we could understand it a little bit. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. 100 million working horses, donkeys and mules support 600 million of the world's poorest people. They are the sole source of income for many families through the backbreaking labor of their animals. Unfortunately, the majority of these working equines are suffering from chronic welfare issues and premature death, nearly all of which are preventable. Brook USA provides funding for scientifically proven, practical, and sustainable equine welfare programs throughout the developing world. We work primarily through Brook, the world's largest international equine welfare charity, which reaches 2 million working equines annually, benefiting 12 million people who depend on them. When we fund training for people and veterinary interventions for working equines, Brook USA effectively prevents and eases the suffering of these animals and ensures better livelihoods for people now and for generations to come. Projects recently funded by Brook USA include construction of permanent water troughs in Ethiopia, continuing education for veterinarians in Senegal, training for Maasai women who own donkeys in Kenya, veterinary interventions in Pakistan, disease prevention and training for animal health care workers in India, 
improve nutrition for animals in Guatemala, and so much more. We also recently funded emergency relief programs for equine victims of natural disasters in the U.S. and Puerto Rico. Please help us fund even more solutions to the world's most challenging equine welfare problems. Welcome, Sally. Welcome, Melissa. Both of you are regional advisory committee members for your area. And so I, that's, that's a mouthful for me to even say. So I'm sure it's, there's a lot going on with, with what you do for the organization. So welcome to both of you to the podcast. Thank, Thank you. So I have to ask, have the two of you ever actually met in person before? Or is this a first? We met um, on a Brook board meeting but only through Zoom. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, that's good. That's good. I guess that's the good thing about this, this day and age with Zoom. We can, we can feel like we're there in person, even if we're not really. So that works great. Well, I'm going to ask a little bit about the organization um, and, and about your role and what you do for your area. But Melissa, you are the regional advisory committee chair for Northern California and Sally, I'm guessing you're for North and South Carolina. I know you're in the foothills area, but what does that, what parts of the the States does that entail? Uh, I actually live in South Carolina. I live about four miles from the North Carolina border, depending on what direction you go in. Some actually less than that if you go a different direction. But um, the Foothills Advisory Council encompasses everywhere from Greenville to uh, Greenville, South Carolina, Spartanburg, South Carolina, Asheville, North Carolina. And of course, Tryon is kind of the epicenter of all things horsey around here and Landrum. uh, And of course, the Tryon International Equestrian Center. Oh, yes. Well, at, we're in Camden, and so not too far from where you are, Camden, South Carolina, and so it's it's good to see um, somebody who's so from so close to home, so that's wonderful. And then, Melissa, tell me a little bit about where you're from, what part of California, and where does your, what's your area, designated area? So I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area, and the Northern California Council encompasses the Bay Area, as well as wine country, Napa and Sonoma, and also out towards Sacramento. Um, But we will kind of go wherever we can reach. So we are um, working on just really increasing Brook awareness, Brook USA awareness out here in Northern California in general. Well, and I've seen a lot and heard a lot about the Regional Advisory Council um, or committees. Um, And I've heard when Sally's name was mentioned, I heard all about musical performances. And then when your name was mentioned, Melissa, I heard about summer challenges from barns and that sort of thing. So I know there's a lot going on, a lot of exciting work. So I'm going to ask each of you to tell me a little bit how you got involved with Brook USA in the first place and what really drew you to the organization and to that mission. Sally, let's start with you. How did you first get involved with Brook USA? I, uh, up until last July, I owned Motlow Creek Equestrian Center in Campobello, and it's a very large hunter-jumper training facility, uh, and I'd owned it for many, many years, and part of the ownership 
involved um, my work with Wofford College and their IHSA team and the Spartanburg Day School and their IEA team. So I had a lot of students coming in out of the barn in addition to our schooling program. And so I was uh, I was recommended uh, to put together a group of volunteers for the World Equestrian Games. And through that experience, not only did uh, we get a lot of volunteers from both uh, the college and the school, I just immediately hit it off with uh, Emily Doolin and Kendall. And, uh, and they stayed at my house and we cooked every night for the whole World Equestrian Games. So it was just two weeks of, of nonstop, wonderful camaraderie and fun uh and so that's how i got involved and i got just completely taken up with uh with the mission of brook usa well and i also heard about and i don't know if this was part of the whole event weekend that you mentioned but there were books written mary alice monroe was telling me about um one of the the books that she has written all about the coming together for events like that and so i'm sure the girls emily and amanda and kendall have all talked about what a wonderful time they've had um with that and i think the the Tryon international equestrian center certainly has brought a whole new um aspect to all of horsemanship in your area. So that's a wonderful, wonderful piece. It absolutely has. And then Melissa, tell me a little bit about your first um, relationship, how you first got involved with Brook USA. It was um, a very long time ago. I think actually prior to Brook USA's formation, um, I had asked someone, I think I said, I really wanted, you know, to support animals who really, you know, were in debt circumstances in a way where all the money was really going to the animals. Sometimes you make a donation and then you get address labels for the next five years and you think uh, that's not really what I wanted to pay for. Um, And someone recommended the UK sister organization, Brooke. Um, I thought that the work they were doing was really important and valuable. So I was contributing there. And then when Brooke USA formed, um, I'm the U.S. It made sense to um, support the put my money in the Brooke USA for the work that's being done, which I think is just really hugely important. Definitely. And so can you tell me what kind of activities have you been able to, I know I mentioned a barn challenge and I'm sure there's more than that, but what are the regional activities that are going on in California? So um, the barn challenge you mentioned was actually a lot of fun. We were very fortunate to be welcomed by Langer Equestrian Group to have a presence at a show they were putting on here in the Bay Area. Um, So, you know, they welcomed us with open arms. We had a booth in the best place um, on the showgrounds, and, and we had sort of a challenge among the different um, trainers, barns who were there competing, who could raise the most money and also who would decorate, you know, the, the best, their tap room area. Um, and it was really quite a lot of fun to be there throughout that show period. Um, so we were able to attract some new supporters who heard about the work that was being funded and were really excited to contribute. Um, and then we were uh, um, invited to make a presentation before the Grand Prix of the awards. Um, uh, one of the board members, Laura Rombauer, came to, to make that presentation. So we um, were really excited about that. We raised, I think, um, around $12,000 or so um, doing that. And then, of course, with the the pandemic um, and the 2020 show season really kind of went off the rails. Um, So one thing that we're doing for this year, 2021, is we're trying to create a package that can be deployed at horse shows, even if for um, safety reasons, it's not appropriate for volunteers to be coming in and adding more people to the headcount. So that may take the form probably of some posters that can simply be placed throughout the grounds with QR codes. So any who is drawn by the message on the poster can simply, oh, I want to learn more or I want to donate and have that be really accessible even if we can't be there. 
Um, and we are looking ahead towards next year towards having a, a polo and a white polo white party similar to what's done in Wellington out here on the West Coast. Um, that looks like it'll be on the calendar for next year. And we're also trying to um, um, actually inspired by you, Sally, and some of the, the work you did with divertimentos and dressage, we are trying to think of an idea also to have a um, sort of a cross event with another group in the fine arts, for example, that might be a, a synergistic way to bring a bunch of people, um, people's attention, shall we say, to the event, even if it can't be a large group in person. So we're thinking about how to get that done, too. Oh, that sounds amazing. And, and you mentioned the divertimentos and dressage. Sally, can you tell us a little bit about that and any of the other um, regional advisory initiatives that you have going on? Yeah, I can talk about divertimentos and dressage all day long. Uh, <laughs> uh, the other hat that I wear is I, I'm a professional flutist and I had played with the Spartanburg Philharmonic for many years. And uh, I, now I'm a, f a freelance flutist. I play in area orchestras. But anyway, I always thought that we needed to combine uh, symphonic music, orchestral music with dressage. I'm not a dressage person myself, but um, if I were, I would want to jump immediately to freestyle. Uh, and so, uh, and then, you know, J.J. Tate moved into the area and uh, a dear friend and, and colleague of mine, Carolyn West, was at Motlow Creek training dressage. It all just came together. And I, I do want to touch on this a little bit about co-fundraising with other organizations. Because we uh, co-hosted with the Spartanburg Philharmonic, we increased our base of support by 100% because, you know, a lot of people know, well, to be honest with you, more and more people are getting to know Brook USA, but a ton of people knew about Spartanburg Philharmonic. So when we co-fundraised with them, uh, the Philharmonic's base of support grew exponentially and so did uh, Brook. Brook USA support. So I, I really encourage everyone to consider this, uh, just like Melissa had mentioned, teaming up with other organizations is a great way to diversify your support. Um, and, you know, that the music and horses, though, just really spoke to me. And it was very successful. We raised $35,000. Um, a, a good bit of it was underwritten by um, various um, organizations and people, but the, the ticket sales were also quite substantial. So uh, coming up this year, of course, we would have done it again this past year, but with COVID, it just was not uh, possible. Um, but we are planning a performance uh, for October of this year. Uh, we've raised the the goal this year. We're going to shoot for 45000 uh, and And now we kind of know what we're doing because we had never done this before. So now <laughs> Doing, we feel a little bit more confident about the whole thing. And I do think that also in Kentucky, uh, they're thinking of taking off the same idea and doing divas and dressage using opera and, and wow. instead of music. So it's a, it's a great little concept and it, it really appeals to a broad base of people. Definitely. I, th I think the first time I heard of it, J.J. Tate was on our first podcast back last year. And so she started talking about it and I was just uh, blown away by the idea. I have to ask how, I mean, to get the whole orchestra there and J.J. and all the equine component of that had to have been a huge undertaking. Did you have rehearsal times or was it just, bam, here we are and it's the performance? Well, the good news is um, all of the musicians were high-level professionals and the two riders that we had were high-level professionals yeah. and so we put off in one rehearsal oh. uh, 
Yes. And every, you know, the orchestral, um, all of us, we had the music in advance. A lot of us had played everything already before. So it was just a matter of putting everything together. We had a phenomenal conductor who just was in love with this whole concept. And our, our concert mistress was a horse person herself. So it was just a, it was total joy. It was joyful the minute we started. Now who picked the music? I did. Because <laughs> I'd actually, I'd been planning this in my head for 10 years. So I had uh, already all figured out. <laughs> you knew it already. I love it. Oh, I love it. Well, it's so funny because I'd been picturing this in my mind. I can't wait to see how it goes in October for, for the next round. Is JJ part of the, the whole planning Absolutely. process? Oh, yeah. He's on the board. He's on the board. Yeah. Yes. the advisory council. Definitely. Yeah. Well, and so speaking with her and having that picture in my mind, I also had the same sort of thing with Laura Rombauer and, and talking about a possible sunset polo and white party out in California. So it's funny how all these things kind of come together and come back around. So Melissa, how do you picture a sunset polo? I mean, we're planning for the sunset polo and white party right now. I guess by the time this podcast airs, it will have happened um, in Florida and Wellington. But how do you picture one happening out in Northern California? Well, I, I think it'll be a lot of fun. I've actually never gone to, I've never been to a polo, a polo match game. Um, so I'm almost picturing like that scene from the movie, Pretty Woman, <laughs> kind of just the fun of watching the horses and the smack of the mallet on the ball. And a lot of people who are sort of just excited to be there and be part of the event, um, you know, and then hopefully becoming very excited about the the work that's being supported by the the you know money that they contribute in order to buy a ticket. So um, I'm I imagine it'll it might start um, perhaps smaller than what uh, what the Wellington event is, and then hopefully we'll be able to expand and um, and hopefully become the the society event of the year for the western half of the United States. So <laughs> oh, yeah, I can see it happening. Well, it's funny you. <laughs> the pretty woman scene. And I'll admit when I first, when they first started telling me about the sunset polo and white party, I asked, well, do you have the stomping of the divots and all the things from pretty woman? And they sort of laughed at me. So I don't know if they really will or not, but maybe we should have that. That could be a lot of fun, even if it's not, you know, part of the official protocol. (laughs) I agree. I agree. 100%. Well, so Melissa, I have to ask, I mean, these these advisory committees are are fairly new. I think um, they're maybe a couple of years old. So what do you foresee? I know we're talking about sort of near future things, but how do you see it developing over the next five, 10 years? Um, If you could look that far into the future, what do you see happening? You know, I, I, I think it's going to expand, um, hopefully, and, and become quite a robust presence um, in in almost every major area where there are horses and, and people who love them. I hope that there will be a pretty strong Brook presence, um, Brook USA presence through these regional councils um, with a lot of people who are just interested in, you know, really believe in what, in the work that's being supported and, and want to support it themselves with their, their time or their um, connections that they may have, or, you know, if they um, have a connection to a certain venue, they could bring, you know, us in for, for an event or something that could be a lot of fun. Um, so that's what I, I hope it will get to. And I think it, we will get there. It may, you know, take some time, especially with the the pandemic and the way that that's all going to, um, how we're going to recover from that. But, um, but I'm very excited about the future, I think. It's going to be good. Definitely. Well, how have you found the people that have been the right fit for you to work with out there? I, I know building committees is just the hardest part to me of finding that right fit. How have you found your your group, your niche of people? 
you know, I've been really lucky almost to have um, to have been introduced to all the, the great people on the California committee simply through Brook USA itself. Um, there was a group of people who had been um, in some way or other pretty uh, passionate about their support and had indicated that they you know, would like to help. And so when the committees were formed, um, that kind of pre-existing group of people who'd said, I'd love to help you, um, we all were kind of brought together. So um, that was very fortunate for me. I didn't have to do the digging myself. Um, in some sense, people had come to Brook USA and said, we want to help. Um, and that's, I think, really you really helpful because you, when you have people who are already are wanting to make their time and their um, connections available, you know, it's, it's, it's quite rewarding to be able to work with them and, and turn that to good purposes. So. Definitely. That makes it easier. It really does. Um, do you see, are there, are there virtual, we've mentioned the pandemic a little bit, are there online virtual options? I know for the Sunset Polo and White Party, now there's a virtual or a, an online auction. There are all sorts of other things. Can you picture some of that happening and staying with us, even when the pandemic is hopefully, hopefully over and, and we're able to do in person? Do you see the online events becoming a little bit more um, part of the norm? Well, I think that one real advantage of an online format is that it enables um, connection with, with people who simply can't be there in person. So one thing that we did over the summer um, in California, um, thanks to the, you know, the um, some of the heads of the countries where Brook USA is funding work, they made their time available to join um Zoom meetings, basically, or, or um, webcasts and, and talk about the work that they were actually doing on the ground. So that was really pretty interesting to simply hear directly from uh, those people and some of the challenges they were facing and just, you know, watching them talk through a project that they had recently done or a challenge that they were facing and, and hear directly from them was really interesting. Um, so I thought that was really useful. And it's not something that you could necessarily do in person, even if you can get the audience together in person, you'll always need you know, the, the person who's in, in India or in, um, you know, Africa to, to be there virtually. And so that's an opportunity to keep that kind of direct connection to the work going. Absolutely. And it makes it so much more real when you hear from somebody who's really there. It really does. Mm -hmm. yeah. Sally, how about you? Have you all been able to do any of the online piece um, with the advisory committees there in, um, in the foothills? We really have not had any online uh, meetings. Uh, we are having our first advisory council meeting in person uh, April 6th. So uh, I have stayed in touch with my board who, by the, I mean, they're all fabulous, uh, just very interesting and dedicated people. Um, I, I think we're, a, you know, a smaller community, I think, than uh, Northern California. And uh, it's just not as hard for us to get together uh, in person. And I kind of wanted to wait until I felt safely that we could have a meeting. We're going to have it outdoors in my backyard. <laughs> and, uh, and for those that can't be there, of course, having Zoom really kind of covers all of our bases. Uh, I am so not technologically uh, advanced. So it's um, the thought of having to run a meeting is terrifying to me, a Zoom meeting. <laughs> and so I was kind of glad that we're going to meet in person. Um, and uh, so, and to touch on a little bit on just the advisory councils and how I see them growing. I, I really hope that we can get to a chapter model that's similar to like the American Cancer Society. They have chapters um, and that format. Uh, I think 
it work, you know, it's a work in progress, but I think there are some tax advantages and, and uh, other advantages to becoming a chapter model rather than an advisory council. Um, and, you know, one of our biggest donors to Diverta Meadows and Dressage is actually lives, she lives in Chicago. So, um, uh, I'm thinking that Chicago has a very vibrant, the so Chicago, um, especially the north and west sides of Chicago, has a huge horse population there. So I would like to see some growth take place there, although I would hate to lose my donor <laughs> for the area. But that is true. Yeah. So how did you build your your committee? How did, how did yours come about? Um, I just, believe it or not, I looked in my phone to start with. I went through every single contact in my phone and uh, I said, oh, she'd be great. Oh, he'd be wonderful. And I just started harassing people until <laughs> I got, <laughs> I have nine board members now. And uh, uh, yeah, and, and so that's kind of how I got it. And we have a really interesting group. We've got a, a published author and we have a restaurateur and, you know, lots of interesting people on the board. And one of the things up at Triumph that uh, worked out really, really well during World Equestrian Games, uh, uh, Brook USA sold bricks. And now there is this brick wall at Triumph International that, you know, uh, you buy a brick for $500 and it's pretty substantial. And so I'm thinking that we can probably expand on that wall to, uh, you know, the Foothills Advisory Council um, because people, I mean, I, um, I'm not sure that I can't remember. I think the bricks were maybe a small brick was 250 and then the larger the brick, the more it costs, but it's a great way to advertise your business and it's a quick way to make money. So um, I'm, I'm seeing that as a possibility. Definitely. That's a great idea because like you said, it's a win-win for, for the, for Brook USA and for the company for advertising. So right. um, I'd like to, to shift the conversation a little bit to some of the reasoning behind Brook USA and the different um, locations where funding is available for, for the greatest need. Are there certain places or are there certain project and projects in certain areas that you find um, the most important or is there somewhere that you would like to visit if you were able to um, see the women in Kenya or visit the brick kilns in India? Is there a certain program that has touched your heart the most, I guess, is my question. Melissa, how about you? Um, well, I was going to say brick kilns, really. And it's not that, uh, I mean, I find all of the work you know, interesting. And, and I'm so I'm glad that it's all being supported. I think the reason that the kilns would be of particular interest to me to see is because of how many different ways the work that Brook USA is supporting is helping the animals who are working there and the people who depend on them. For example, um, anything from simply providing more education about the needs of the working animal for hydration breaks and rest breaks in the shade, um, assisting with the construction of a permanent water facility and a shade shelter, um, farrier care that can improve the quality of their hooves so that they can work in a healthy way and support their people. Um, I, I gather there are some ways to, to construct sort of a rolling system so that not all of the movement of those heavy bricks is all on the backs of the horses. Some of, some parts can be covered by kind of a roller um, and also providing first aid kits, for example, so that, you know, if there is an injury, it can be promptly addressed and treated so it doesn't become worse and all of those things but 
enabling you know the working animals to be healthy, they can continue to work, and then the people who are depending on them can continue to have that resource, um, and then the bricks get made. And so I just find it to be kind of a microcosm of of um, an economy almost that is entirely dependent on the healthy work of these animals, and to see how much of a difference can really be made in their welfare and and in the resulting. Um, improvement in the livelihood of people is just, I think, would be really fascinating. So. Definitely. Yes. And I mean, I was interested also to learn that it, there is, has been expansion into programs in the United States. And so mm-hmm. we hear about the California wildfires or the storms in New Orleans or, or wherever. And so to know that um, some of the funding has gone for for programs here in the United States um, is, has also been has been good. Um, Sally, how about you? Is there a certain place that you would like to visit in particular or something something special that that comes to mind for you? Honestly, under the right conditions, I would be so honored to go to any of the uh, Brook USA funded um, areas. And, uh, you know, just to further on what, uh, further touch on what Melissa said, um, and, and we can't say it enough, is one of the big draws to Brook USA is that it's not just about animals or, and it's not just about the people. It is about that, that relationship between the horses, donkeys, and mules and the people who not just need, I mean, depend on their very lives depend upon these animals. And so um, we can't reiterate that enough. And I, I just to go back a little bit about how I got the board is when I made it clear that this wasn't just about animals or just about people or just about an idea. It is, it is a, it is a, it's a combination of helping on so many levels. And I think that that's why Brooke and Brooke USA in general just speaks to me. Um, Yeah. I'd go anywhere in the world. If I was allowed to go, (laughs) I would be happy to women for donkeys. And yeah, I would love that Uh, all, but anywhere. Absolutely. Well, talking about JJ, she, the one of the first trips I heard about was JJ and Allie Brock and the trip to Guatemala. And um, just hearing about that firsthand from from the people who have been there, it just it really does make you make you appreciate the relationships we have with our own animals here. But um, but appreciate just life in general. So, yes, I, I would love to visit any of those places. So we've talked a lot about Brook USA and the advisory committees and that sort of thing. Um, what is it, What do you do in, in your your everyday life when you're not working for Brook USA? Sally, what is, what's your downtime look like? What are your hobbies? Oh, well, thank you for asking. I have a lot more downtime than I've ever had in my life because I'm, I'm currently retired. I mean, I, I taught school for 34 years, uh, taught music, and, um, uh, and then I owned Motlow Creek Equestrian Center for 14 years. And I, I'm with, still within the first year of retirement. And oh. so I've just uh, really discovered a whole new world out there. Uh, but I would say that I'm uh, actively trying to to play as much as possible with area chamber orchestras uh but with covid we're just sort of sneaking back into that um so uh, yeah but that and riding my horse so that's what i'm (laughs) we have a lot in common i'm also a music teacher theater teacher for 34 years and so it's i knew there was something there i knew we were going to be friends (laughs) And Melissa, how about you? What do you do? Um, I was going to say in your day job, but in your downtime. In my downtime, well, um, I'm I'm also a rider. Um, I have a, a retired horse. He's 24. I've you know known him in some capacity for 20 years. 
Um, and then I've actually just finally found another horse to buy. I, um, who I've had now for a month. And so oh, we are to the best of my ability um, working on dressage and just very much looking forward to that journey. So oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So how long were you, were you thinking you were getting ready for a new horse? That's exciting. Oh, well, I think that I, I tried the first horse in this search in July. Um, oh. So I, I would say it was a, a good seven months of searching. Um, tried a lot of really nice horses, met a lot of really nice people and sort of finally found the one. <laughs> so. That is great. Well, I, I need to follow along on your story and see how things end up and see how things go. Oh, well, thank you both so much for sharing a little bit of your own stories with me today and, and for, for more about, about Brook USA. Is there anything that you feel that we, that we need to tell people um, if, if you were going to ask for help from someone, what would you say is the best way that someone could help Brook USA? Melissa, what do you think? Donate. Simply donate. And, and part of that is obviously where we, we need funds to support you know, this work. But one thing I think is really powerful is how very, very much good can come out of even a very small donation. Um, that's, I think, what's kind of the the inspiration behind the current power of one campaign that simply one person making one donation, um, even of a, a small amount of money can really make a difference. If you um, can fund, for example, one first aid kit in a brick kiln that can treat, you know, several injuries that otherwise could have, you know, really affected those, those donkeys, for example, and kept them out of work for a long time. But quick treatment can make a huge difference in their lives and the lives of the people who depend on them. Um, so, Absolutely. Um, you know, if you just take the money in your pocket and you donate that, that can make a real difference. So that's what I would say. Great. Sally, can you think of anything else? Well, I am just going to, uh, you know, further that conversation and promote the power of one, which is exactly what Melissa was talking about. It's, it is a, it, you know, Brook USA's latest campaign and it will go through the end of October of this year. And uh, for more information about that, of course, you go to Brook USA.org. Um, or, and actually you can text, uh, uh, on also, and I, I think I have it here and you might want to just say it again. It's, uh, text orange, the word orange, um, to 71760. And, uh, and that's, that's another way to make a donation. Um, and just mention Brook USA as much as possible. I think that's one of the most important things in having an interesting and diverse board is that every time that they do something for Brook, they can put that on their Facebook page or other social media and just get the word out. The more people know about Brook USA and the fine work that the organization does, the more inclined they will be to donate. Absolutely. And I think you're right. I'm noticing that the word is going out more and more and from, from things like the World Equestrian Games to the National Horse Show and everywhere else, we're just seeing that Brook USA presence. And I think that's that's great. And word of mouth, like you said, um, but also texting orange to 71760. And I right. think that's the easy way to remember. So absolutely. Well, thank you both so much. And um, I'm going to look forward to coming out to California for the first sunset polo and white party out there. And Me? for October, yes, Sally, we're going to hop a plane and, and okay. we'll be there. And then I'm also going to mark my calendar for October for the next divertimentos and dressage. I can't wait. Thank you both. Thank, thank you. you.